Howdy, this is Father Greg Gerhardt, Associate Pastor of St. Mary's Catholic Center. Thanks for tuning in to Aggie Catholic Talks podcast. Today's episode is a recording of Dr. Edward Cerise's talk at Magnify this past September. He spoke about life in Christ. Hope that you enjoy it. If you like, head over to aggiecatholic.org magnify to see the Magnify schedule for the rest of the semester. Thanks, God bless, and gigum. back here in God's country, St. Mary's here in Texas. My fourth visit here over the years, and I always just come away so enriched and just so uh, edified by the amazing devotion. Uh, here we have 600 people, maybe more, yeah, that, are, that are in this room here, taking time out of a busy school schedule here on campus to come out to worship the Lord, to sing His praises to be enriched, and so God bless you for your witnesses. It's, it's very encouraging for me. Uh, I want to start off, though, by taking you all on a pilgrimage. Do you want to come on pilgrimage with me to Rome? That's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Rome right now, at least in this talk. And I want to take you to one of my favorite churches just near the Piazza Navona in Rome. And it's a little church called the Church of San Luigi, St. Louis. And in this beautiful Baroque church, on the left-hand side, but, uh, next to the main altar, to the left-hand side of the main altar, there's a side chapel that has three paintings by the Baroque artist Caravaggio that depicts the life of St. Matthew. And you have a, Matthew writing his scriptures, you have an image of Matthew's martyrdom, but the one everyone turns to is over on the back side of this chapel, and it's the call of St. Matthew. And I wanna talk about this painting. I love taking pilgrims there, not just to admire this artistic masterpiece, but also for what this piece of art tells us about what it really means to follow Jesus to really follow Jesus, not just be a Catholic, not just be a Catholic that shows up at church on Sunday, a Catholic that believes all the right doctrines and maybe puts some money in the basket. No, no, what, what's happening on the inside? How do I know I'm really following him as a disciple? So what happens is on one side of the painting, you have Jesus walking into the tax collector's office where Matthew is. Matthew's a tax collector. He's there with his tax collector buddies and they're all counting the money on the table and Jesus walks in and he's pointing over toward Matthew. And on Jesus' side of the painting, there's a window behind him, so there's all this light shining into this dark room, and the symbolism is clear. It's Jesus, the light of the world, walking in to Matthew's darkness. But on the other side of the room, you've got Matthew and all of his tax collector friends, and they're not even aware that Jesus has entered into the room. These are men that are just kind of caught up with themselves, they're focused on their money. There's one older man. He's holding his glasses. He's leaning over the shoulders of someone else, looking at all the coins, miserly wondering, how much money did I get today? And then there's a, a younger man, a younger tax collector who's there, and he's leaning over, and he's got all these coins, and he's sitting there just kind of like this, stroking his coins. And he looks forlorn. He's got all the money in the world, all the riches of this world, but he's still empty. He's longing for something more. He's just there stroking his coins. It reminds me of how so many young people today are like doing the same thing with their iPhone, just kind of looking down, <laughs> stroking, unaware of anything else going on around them. Well, there is one person in the room who does notice, and that person's Matthew. And I love the look on Matthew's face in this painting. He's got this look that has multiple conflicting emotions combined all in one look. It's amazing. Uh, on one hand, Matthew is, has a look of shock, utter surprise, just like, you, 
you're, you're pointing at me, Jesus? <laughs> you want me to be a follower of you? I mean, do you know who I am? Do you know what I do on the weekends? Do you, do you know? I'm a, I'm a tax collector. You know, I, I work for the Roman enemy. I'm a traitor to the Jewish nation. I'm known for taking too much money for myself like a thief. And, and you want to choose me, a great sinner, to become a disciple of you? You've got to be kidding me. You must be thinking of someone else. But then, if you look at his face, there's also an expression of curiosity. You can tell he's kind of thinking about it. He's actually intrigued. He's kind of wondering, huh, I wonder what my life would be like if I did really commit to following him. I mean, I've heard of this Jesus. I've heard him come in here in Capernaum. I've listened to some of his talks, and I've watched him do some healings. I'm kind of interested in him, but wow, I wonder what my life would be like if I actually left here and followed him as a disciple and committed to following him. Maybe my life would be better. Maybe I'd be happier. I might be free. Maybe, maybe I could do this. You can tell he's actually thinking about it. But in that same look, there's also a look of horror on his face. Like, whoa, that would be really radical. Oh, I don't know if I could do that. That'd be really scary. I'd have to give up this job and this prestige. And uh, I, I, I'd lose my friends. They'd think I was really weird. I became really religious or something. And, uh, and I'd lose all this money. I don't know if I could do that. I think I just want to cling on to my money bags. And I love that picture of Matthew, all those multiple conflicting emotions all at once. And I think what that is telling us is it gives us a great insight into the soul of Matthew at this pivotal moment between Matthew the tax collector and Matthew the disciple. What will Matthew do? And I think we're all invited to enter into that painting and enter into Matthew's shoes. Do we sense that Jesus is inviting us and calling us to something so awesome, something great? We're not sure all that it entails, but are we sensing that Jesus is maybe inviting us to take that next step of faith, to step out and to love him more or to follow him more faithfully, maybe give him more of our time, give him more in prayer, learn more about my faith? Am I sensing that call of Jesus, the light of the world, shining into some areas of darkness and I'm realizing maybe that needs to change? And there's a part of us that maybe feels relieved saying, I can picture, my life will be better. I, I sense that I'll be free, that I'll, I'll, uh, my life will be happier if I do this. But there's also a sense of, oh, I don't know, that'd be scary. And, and, and I, I love this image because it gets to the heart of what it means to be a disciple. And that's what I want to talk about with you this evening. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? And if I had to pick one word, if I had to pick just one biblical word, for what it means to really follow Jesus. Not just be a Catholic that goes through the motions, but to really follow him. I mean, wouldn't it be great if there was a holiness thermometer you could take? Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, you could go like this and go, oh, I grew in 15 degrees of holiness this week. I'm on the right path. That would be awesome. But there isn't one like that. You know, and sometimes people will turn to different things for the thermometer. You know, they'll turn to things like, you know, well, I don't kill people. <laughs> I don't rob banks, so I must be really holy. <laughs> well, it's good that you don't kill or rob banks, but Jesus is inviting us to something so much more. Then there's others that will turn to things like, like well, daily mass. That's even better. That's really good. But what's happening on the inside? Is that mass you attend sometimes? When you stop by the chapel, you come in here for mass. Is it bearing the fruit that God wants it to bear in your life? What else is going on? Sometimes people turn to orthodoxy. They'll say, I, I follow all the church's teachings. 
you know, in this crazy world, I actually believe in the Bible and I believe what Jesus teaches about even controversial moral issues that no one else wants to follow today. But I am pro-life and I'm pro-marriage. And, and again, that's really good, essential. We need to follow Jesus' teachings. But that's not enough. I mean, think about it. If I told you I'm a great basketball player, I'm an awesome basketball player, you said, wow, Edward Street, I didn't know that about you. What makes you so great at basketball? And I said, I'm really, really, really good at following all the rules. <laughs> I'm amazing. I don't dribble out of bounds. I don't double dribble. I don't travel with the basketball. I should be an NBA All-Star. <laughs> and, re and really, you know, I, I think I should be right there with Steph Curry and everyone else. I mean, I, they, they really need me on their team. You just laugh at me and mock me, as you should. Because you know that while following the rules is essential to being a great basketball player, if you don't know how to dribble, shoot, block out, pass, you're never going to be a great basketball player. You don't have the skills of a basketball player. Following the rules is essential, but that doesn't make you a great basketball player. And the same is true in our walk with Jesus. It's not enough to say, hey, I go to church on Sunday, and I, I serve every once in a while, and I follow all the church's teachings. That's great. It's absolutely essential. You have to do it. But Jesus is inviting us to something more. What is that something more he's inviting us to? I want to talk about that one biblical word. This one biblical word that sums up discipleship. What does it mean to really follow Jesus as a disciple? If I had to pick one word, it's... Okay. Uh, go two slides, if you could. There we go. Imitation. Imitation. The word imitation. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to bring you back. So I took you to Rome. I'm going to take you to the Holy Land now. We're going to go back to the Holy Land. We're also going to go into a time machine 2,000 years ago. And I want you to know what was it like to be a disciple? What did it mean to be a disciple? So the word disciple in Greek, methetes, means student or learner. And I don't want you to think of that as like a student at Texas A&M where you go into a big lecture hall with hundreds of other, hundreds of other people and there's a professor up on the stage and you take notes. And that, that's not really what a rabbi, disciple, teacher, disciple relationship was like. It, it, was, it was more intense. Yes, you took notes. Yes, you probably tried to memorize the rabbi's teachings, but you did so much more. You strove to imitate the master's way of life, his whole way of life. So if you were a disciple of a rabbi, you lived with your rabbi. You shared meals with your rabbi. You, you went out and watched the way your rabbi talked. You watched the way your rabbi studied. You watched the way he served the poor. You watched the way he debated other rabbis. It was his whole way of life that you were striving to emulate. And so it was all about imitation, very different than modern education. Modern education, just take the notes and spin them back. But to be a disciple of a rabbi, you want to follow his whole way of life. That's why when Jesus enters the scene in first century Judaism, he's a rabbi. And what do rabbis do? They gather disciples. He, when he gathered his disciples, he didn't say, hey, Peter and Andrew, leave your fishing nets behind and go sign up for classes at the synagogue. That's not what he did. He said, come follow me. When he entered St. Matthew's office that day, he didn't say, hey, Matthew, go meet me on that mountain. I'm going to go give a sermon. Take a lot of good notes. No, he said, follow me. It was an invitation to follow his whole way of life. Jesus basically invited all his disciples to go on a three-year camping trip with him. As they traveled all around Galilee, pitching up tents, you know, here and there, they're living together all day long for three years. Have you ever gone camping with someone for just a weekend? <laughs> you really get to know people when you go camping with them. 
But imagine being Philip or James or Andrew or Peter or John, and, and you're with Jesus every day like that, and you watch how every morning Jesus gets up early to go pray. He goes to a quiet place by himself to pray. Now, he talked about the importance of prayer, but what's going to leave an impression on you more is his example, what he did every morning. First thing, he dedicated to prayer. Jesus talked about forgiveness, but then you hear about how on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Wow, that's real forgiveness. That's going to leave much more of an impression than just the lesson. Forgive your, your enemy. He, he lived it out, and it was his whole way of life you were striving to emulate. So there's another, you know, this is why Jesus, by the way, himself says in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, that when a disciple is fully trained, he becomes like the teacher himself. That's the goal of the Christian life, to allow Christ to change us, to allow his life that's already abiding in us to, to grow and to transform us so that his life is radiating outward through us. We are imitating Christ. We're becoming ever more like him. Like St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. Another great passage, St. Paul says, next slide here, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's what he says to his own disciples in Corinth. He says, imitate me to the extent that I'm imitating Jesus. See, this is the heart of what discipleship is all about. And in our Catholic tradition, when we talk about holiness, what does it mean to grow in holiness and pursue sanctity? It's all about one of the most famous works ever written. That is one of the most famous works next to the Bible, written by Thomas Akempis. Anyone know the name of that book? Imitation. The what of Christ? The imitation of Christ. That's what holiness is ultimately all about about God changing us into his likeness. Now, I'm going to take you to another place. We keep going overseas together. This is fun. Anyone want to go to London? We're going to go to London now. I got a question. Anyone ever been to London? Anyone been to London? You know, ever go down into the subway system in London, the tube, the underground? You know, I've, I've done metro, you know, subways in many different parts of the world. I've done it in Bangkok, in Italy, in Paris, Washington, D.C., New York. And we all have these subways, and when you go down to the subway in London, there's an amazing thing that you find that you don't find in all these other places. There's these signs everywhere. These signs everywhere, three words, and, they, and then they announce these three words on the speaker. What are those three words? We go to the next slide. Mind the gap. Mind the gap. You hear, you hear on the speaker, mind the gap. Mind the gap. And you see these signs on the platform. So when the train pulls up, there's a little gap between the platform where the people are and the train, and they have all these signs, mind the gap, because they don't want you to fall into the gap. I guess something horrendous must have happened in London a long time ago. It's a psychological. I don't know why. That, you don't need these in any other country, but mind the gap is everywhere. Because what happens if you don't mind the gap, what happens? You, you fall. Here's my question for you. Are you minding the gap in your life? Are you minding the gap in your relationship with God? Do you notice the areas where I'm not living like him? I'm not loving like him. Do you mind the gap in your friendships? Do you treat your roommate and your friends like Jesus would? Or are there times that you're just lazy and you don't get up to help them? Or there's times where you just want to do your thing and your preference and eat at the restaurant you want to or watch the show you want to instead of maybe generously giving in to other people's preferences? Do you notice that about yourself? Do you notice the, the gap in your life? Do you notice that sometimes you're vain? You're too worried about what other people think about you. You're always anxious. Oh, did I say the right thing? Oh, no, you're worried. Oh, maybe I said it wrong. Now they're going to think this. Do you, do you mind the gap and notice that you, you struggle with something there that Jesus wants to heal you of? 
Do you mind the gap in your prayer life? Do you realize, yeah, I say some prayers every once in a while, but I don't have a consistent life like Jesus does of praying every day. Every day he dedicated time for prayer. And I kind of just say, bless us, O Lord, and maybe a little prayer in the morning and night, but I don't really take time for just conversation with him. Do you mind the gap? For those of you that are in dating relationships, do you mind the gap in those relationships? Do you love your boyfriend or girlfriend with authentic love? Do you serve them and seek what's best for them? Are you often in it more for yourself and what you get out of them? Rushes of emotions or sexual pleasure? Are you using your boyfriend or your girlfriend in some way? Are you falling into some sexual sin? Is there some gap in the relationship that needs to be addressed? Do you mind the gap in your life, in your marriage? For those that are married, do you mind the gap in the ways that you realize, I, I'm not the best husband I could be in these ways? Uh, or I'm not the best father, I could be a better father in these ways. Are you aware of the gaps in your life? Because my friends, a disciple, a disciple doesn't just go through the motions and oh, I believe and I go to church on Sunday and I follow the right doctrines. It's much more than following the rules. A true disciple minds the gap. And there's two truths that every disciple has to be aware of. The first truth is on the left-hand side, what I'm made for. We're all made to be transformed in Jesus Christ. We're all made for holiness. We're made to become like Christ. And as John Paul II said, St. John Paul II said, a true disciple thinks like Jesus, loves like Jesus, serves like Jesus, values what Jesus values. And that's what I'm made for. I'm made to be what Jesus said in the sermon. I'm made, to be, I'm made to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. To be perfect like Christ. That's what I'm made for. And we stare at that and it's like, wow, that's pretty intense. I just want to get a show of hands. Has anyone reached that perfection yet? I just want to know. Has anyone reached that level of holiness? I want to meet you. Because that means you're a saint. And if I touch you, I become a second-class relic. And that would be really cool. <laughs> so we're all aware this is what we're made for. We're made to live like Jesus, to love like him, to think like him, to serve like him. But then there's the second truth. And that second truth is the truth of where I am right now. This is who I am right now. I've got some good qualities. I really do love God. I do love my wife. I love my kids. I love my, the, my friends. But I also know there's many ways I fall short. And my love is tainted by pride or selfishness or wounds from my past. And, and I'm just, I'm not able to give the best of my life to these people and to my God the way I'd like to. So I'm, I'm aware of the truth, the gap between where I am right now and where God wants me to be. That's a true disciple is aware of that. And you know what discipleship is all about? Next slide. Discipleship is all about getting from A to B. It's all about getting from where I am now to where God wants me to be. The process of discipleship, that's what it's all about. Now I want to go practical with you here. I want to talk about how do we actually experience this transformation? How do I experience this change? You know, the first thing, if I mind the gap and I'm aware, yeah, there's areas I need to grow. I need to grow in prayer, I need to grow in service, I need to grow in kindness, whatever it is. Then we have this first point, which is this upward movement, where I realize I want to live like Jesus. I want to give my life like him, to him. So I strive to imitate Jesus more. And have you ever done this? You go on a retreat, or you get involved in a small group, and then you start to realize, oh, there's things I want to work on. I want to get better. And what you realize is once you start working on it, and you try to root out a weakness, root out a sin, you find it's really, really easy to do so, right? Wrong. <laughs> you start to realize how hard it is, right? When you're not trying to be better, you don't realize how hard it is to be better. You're just kind of coasting life. 
It's kind of like my kids. When I take my kids to the mall, this always happens. I don't understand this, but every time we go to the mall, they see the escalators and they all run to the escalator. And what do they do? They run up the downward escalator. I was like, girls, stop! No, and one goes, the next one takes off. They're all going up the downward escalator and, and they have to work really hard to go up the downward escalator, right? Because if you're just standing there, what happens when you're on the downward escalator just standing there? What's happening to you? You're going down. And the same is true in your life. So, so if, if now you're working on it, you're trying, and it's hard. But what you realize is that, well, maybe I just need more effort, more self-will, and, you know, I just got to try harder. You know, I have the Nike approach to my spiritual life. Remember the old Nike slave saying, you know, just do it. I just got to do it. That's what some people will say. You know, be a better Christian. Get rid of those sins. But you realize you can't. I'm going to tell you about a story of my little daughter, Eleanor, here. To my little daughter, Eleanor. So she's three now. This is taken about a year and a half ago. But I tell you, little Eleanor, have you ever seen a kid take their first step? That's really fun. But what's more fun is watching a kid take their first jump. <laughs> it's so funny when they're trying to jump. Like all the older sisters were sitting around trying to teach her how to jump. And the brothers got in and they're all saying, hey, Eleanor, jump. And they're all jumping. And she's just kind of like dancing there. Can't really. <laughs> And then they try to teach her, okay, ready? Bend your knees. And she, she bend her knees. She get a big smile on her face. And they, they all bend their knees too. And they say, ready? Three, two, one, jump. And they'd all jump. And then Eleanor would go. <laughs> no takeoff. <laughs> and she'd laugh and they'd laugh. They said, let's try again. Ready? Three, two, one, jump. And they jump. And then she couldn't get off the ground. And they're laughing and she's laughing. But about after six or seven times of failure, she wasn't laughing anymore. She was frustrated, discouraged. She just walked away. No jump, no jump. <laughs> and that's what can happen in your walk with God. You need to be aware of the gaps as a disciple. That's the first step. If you're not even aware of the gaps, you're never able to go after them. You're just going to go down the downward escalator in your life. But then you start working on it, and you're going to run up against your own weakness. Which is why the next point I want to really make is so important. It's the crucial moment of what some saints call the second conversion. First conversion, Jesus is important. He's the center of my life. I'm going to follow him and work and mind the gap. I'm working on it. I'm trying, but oh, it's hard. And I'm not changing, Lord. Why am I not changing like I want to? Why are my relationships not better? Why, why is my prayer life not better? How come I'm still struggling with these same dumb sins? I keep bringing to confession week after week, month after month. Why am I not changing? And you can feel like Eleanor. And he's saying, I just want to give up. Why bother trying? I'm never going to change. I'm a mess. But it's at this point that God wants to come and meet you the most. And I want to talk about something one of my hero saints uh, brought out. So we can go to the next slide here. Here, one of my favorite saints talks about the Valley of Humility. Her name is St. Therese of the Sioux. St. Therese was writing a letter to her sister, Celine, who felt like Eleanor on a spiritual level. She just felt like, I, I'm trying, and it's just not working, and I can't change. And, and she says, she writes a letter to Therese, and says, Therese, I, I feel like God's way up on a mountain, and I've got all these gaps and these weaknesses, and, and it's like, I have to scale this mountain, and I just, I just can't do it, it's just too hard. And Therese wrote back and beautifully said this, Celine, you're trying to scale the mountain of sanctity, but God wants to meet you down low in the fertile valley of humility. 
You're trying to scale the mountain of sanctity, but God wants to meet you down low where you are right now, in the valley of humility, and that's fertile. That's what's going to bear fruit. What does she mean by that? I think so many times we want to kind of, you know, just we want to use our will and have a plan and grow spiritually and, and, and try to achieve our way up to God. And then we can pat ourselves on the back. Hey, I did a pretty good job at that Christian thing. But the reality is that'll never work. God wants to meet the real you, where you are right now. Where you are right now with this sin issue, where you are right now with your prayer life, where you are right now with your vocational discernment, whatever it is going on in your life, he wants to meet the real you, not where you'd ideally like to be someday, not the ideal vision of yourself, not the self you like to present and project on social media, not the self that you want everyone at St. Mary's to know, oh, I want them to think I'm a really good Catholic. No, no. Jesus wants to meet the real you with all of your troubles, all your struggles, all your fears, your insecurities, your wounds, your hurts, your weaknesses, your sins, your hidden addictions, everything. Because that's the real you. The real you is not up there. The real you is right here. And Jesus knows all that you're going through, all of your struggles, all of your sins, all of your fears. He knows that. And he loves you. He's madly in love with you. And he's tired of you trying to climb up there to meet him because he says, no, 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 this is where you are. I want to meet you right here. And if you allow Jesus to, to encounter you as you are right now in the valley of humility, that's where real change and transformation can begin in your life. Because that's where God can come in when we come humbly to him and we surrender. Lord, this is the best I can do. I'm a mess in these ways. I, I'm good at, you know, I tried here and I did some good things here, but I, I messed up in these ways. This is really who I am. And we allow God to meet us. It's then that we begin to experience his amazing love for us. We'll go to the next slide here. Oh, it's right there. Okay, yeah. We experience this amazing love for us. That we see that we're loved even in the midst of all our weaknesses. You know, I have to be honest with you. So I'm really into theology and philosophy and apologetics and virtue theory, theology of the body. I really love all that stuff. When I was your age in college, maybe even back in high school, my youth group, and in college and young adult years, I'd hear it like on a retreat. Someone would say, God loves you. And as soon as that God love you line came, I'd be like, oh gosh, can we get to something more interesting? <laughs> we get to like apologetics or the real presence of the Eucharist, transubstantiation. You know, oh yeah, I know God loves me. Yes, I get I know that. Yeah, God loves everyone. I'm a part of everyone. Yeah, God loves me. I get that. Now, can we get to the, the really good stuff now? <laughs> but here's the issue. In our age, we're trained to think that we have to earn our love. We have to earn love from other people. That love's based on how I perform what I achieve, what I do for others, you know, how I perform in class, how I perform on the field, what trophies I get, what awards I get, what things I can put on my resume. And then if I got dysfunctional family members, I just have to act a certain way so that I can keep them from not being mad at me so that they love me. I have to do all these things to, to, to get love. I have to project an image of myself and get many likes and comments. And, and if I do that, then I, then I feel good about myself. But it's exhausting because that love never left because then I got to get another like the next day. And I got to treat the family member another way the next day to kind of get them to love me. And I got to achieve one thing on the field and in the classroom. I got to achieve another one. It just never ends. It's exhausting. And so many young people admit this, that they feel so exhausted inside. And when they actually admit they don't have it all together, that they've even struggled with certain things, maybe have certain sins, 
That's a big moment for them. You know, I, I work with chaplains around the country and people that do young adult ministry with professionals in Washington and New York and LA. You know, I, I hear stories, you know, about how many young people, they could be the smartest, brightest, and make, you know, $500,000 on Wall Street, but they feel like junk inside. And eventually, as they grow in their faith, they open up maybe to a priest or to a religious sister or a young adult minister or something, and they admit something that they struggled with, maybe a serious sin. And then later, the, 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 the minister will kind of accompany them through that, and they find forgiveness and all that. But then the minister may come back and say something like, hey, do you remember when you first told me about that? What did you think about the way I responded when you shared that, that sin you were struggling with? And the, and the person will say, I couldn't believe it. I mean... You didn't judge me, you didn't reject me, you were still my friend. I, I, I just never experienced anything like that. And then the minister will say, if that's how I responded with all of my weakness and frailty, imagine how God the Father looks at you with total love. And then these amazing professionals that work in Washington or Wall Street just break down in tears because they've never encountered a love like that before. You see, my friends, love cannot be earned you're never going to earn your love from your parents. You can't earn it from a friend. You can't earn it from a boss. And you certainly can't earn it from God. It has to be received. But it can only be received if we dare to go to the valley of humility to encounter Jesus' amazing love. Last story I'll close with here. Um, I just sent my daughter off to, to college. So the Sri's had the first child we just launched. She's at Benedictine College in Kansas. And we just saw her last weekend. She's doing great. It's hard to believe because I can still remember when we brought her home from the hospital on Thanksgiving Day. And there was so much to be thankful for. And I remember, like, brand new parent. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm always checking, is the baby breathing still? <laughs> How do you change a diaper? What's a onesie? I didn't know. I didn't know anything, you know. But sometimes Beth would, you know, be, you know, she finished nursing the baby, and then I would just go take and hold the baby. And I remember just being in my living room, passing, pacing back and forth like this. And then it just came to me like a few days, sometime in the first week of her life, I mean, it's like three in the morning, I'm just holding her like this. And she's doing nothing. She's spitting up, if anything, and making poopy diapers. And, but she's doing nothing. All of a sudden, she's just got these big brown eyes staring at me. And she's just looking at me. All of a sudden, I just stopped. And all of a sudden, I was just overcome by this love. It's like, oh, I love you. <laughs> I love it. And here again, this baby did nothing to earn this love. If anything, I lost a lot of sleep, you know, she made a lot of messes. But I was just filled with love. Jesus wants you to experience that love. God the Father wants you to experience that love. It cannot be earned. It's only when you dare to let Jesus encounter you as you really are. Go to him tonight in adoration. As we go into prayer, as we go into adoration, go to him tonight. Come to him with all of your needs, your fears, your hurts, your desires, your sins, and just say, Jesus, this is who I am. I want to be better. I mind the gap. I want to be better. But I'll trust in your grace to heal me in your time and in your way. But for right now, I just want to welcome and receive your love. So I'm going to close there, and we'll do a little glory be as we transition. And I'll just mention, I'm, I'm going to pray with you all, and then I'll be happy to talk to you and answer any questions. And all I'm sharing with you is from the book I wrote on this topic called Into His Likeness. So let's close with the glory be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, 
as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.